Hello, everybody, and um, a really warm and special welcome to somebody who I have admired for a very long time during my work in the early years, personally and professionally, um, Jane Lane. Hello, Jane. How are you? I can't believe you're saying this. (laughs) (laughs) It's the truth. It's absolutely the truth. And if nobody knows your name, they need to go and do a lot of self-reflection because your name carries so much absolute honour and weight in the area of anti-racism and equality and inclusion work in the early years. And it's an absolute pleasure. Seriously, an absolute pleasure, Jane. I'm so excited. Oh, so nice. To you. Thank you so much. No one's ever talked to me like that. <laughs> you... Because all the things I've written and all the things I've talks I've given and all the things I've done, hardly anyone ever says thank you or that was good or anything. No feedback. Mm. So that is what's happening now. I am beginning to, the last year I'm getting feedback, but I had to wait a lifetime. Mm. I don't mind not having feedback, but it's nice to know that something is, is valued Absolutely. or understood. Or agreed Uh, with. And you're uh, not just talking rot. (laughs) (laughs) And that's very true. And sometimes I think this is the thing about this kind of work. Anti-racism as a general kind of area, it's, it's often a lifetime. It's something that takes a lot of time to embed, a lot of time to process and to understand. And I really empathize with that conversation there around not really having any feedback about the validity and the importance of it but I am here certainly to give you all of those roses and all of that praise because it's impacted on my practice and my reflections and finding work like yours to read and to have it you know embedded within every element of practice as an early years professional has as I said been invaluable so all of the roses, Jane, all of the praise, because your work is and has always been so necessary. Well, thank you so much. It, you know, I might have died 10 years ago <laughs> or, or five years ago, and I would never have known this. Oh. You see, the people don't tell you. And most, most white people, after all, most people I talk to are white. Most white people don't really understand and they don't want to venture into this field. They might go away and think about it, but at the time they don't. And I remember going to a meeting in Essex and everybody in the room was white and I could feel they were quite hostile to me. And suddenly a black guy at the back just stood up and went, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I just thought that's, you know, I only need that. I just need someone to say it's okay. It's very important to, to, to say these things and to acknowledge one another. Uh, black and white and and Sharon today and I were talking today how important it is that we work together we're working together writing this thing it doesn't matter who we are but we do work together and we need one another because there aren't enough black people to fight this battle you need white people as well you've got to take people like me and other people who agree and we need this is one another. totally and this is absolutely the pinnacle of these kinds of conversations and 
this word now that's become on trend, being an ally, allyship, in the conversation around anti-racism work within the early years, has started to pick up momentum. And what's really important is that we don't lose the momentum in understanding the importance of working, as you said, collaboratively and collectively and to support one another and to look actually in this instance beyond the color of our skin and our religion and our sexual orientation but we must understand that the common belief system that we all share is that we want the best for children and we want the best for society and humanity globally so i am somebody who i feel has taken on this kind of perpetual kind of, mm, I guess, encouragement around the earlier sector to look at one another and say, what do you want to achieve? What do I want to achieve? What do we have in similar, um, sorry, similar, what do we have in common and what's different about us? But what are we gonna do about bridging this gap to work together as white people, as Asian people, as black people to push this agenda forward? So without the brilliant kind of support that I have had from people such as, you know, Kerry Payne and Kate Moxley, in this, it would be very, very hard to gather and to sustain momentum, Jane. And I think what I was saying at the start is that your written work has been often that companion, that allyship, you know, that I have sought and looked back to in terms of like a reference point because you will know that there are often lots of lone voices in this and the opportunity to come together has been improved now because of technology and that's what we're using today which has been <laughs> really joyful we can join together through technology but one thing black people need to know is that people of me who are white also want to have race equality we yeah. don't just do it because we want black people to have equality. We want it for ourselves because we want a world where everyone values one another equally. That mm -hmm. is what the world I want to live in. And mm -hmm. that was the sort of world that my dad started with me. So I think it started with my dad. So, I, you know, I never had any other, other thoughts. Mm -hmm. He was mm -hmm. very positive in my life. Yeah. And these are key things. Parenting. Tell us a bit about your dad, Jane, if you don't mind. Love to learn. I'd love to know a bit about your dad. Well, my dad was a Quaker, became a Quaker when he, when he was about 30, and he was a conscientious objector. Mm -hmm. So I remember as a child having um, my neighbour, who was in the Home Guard, was, it was during the war, on the, on the Birmingham Road in, between Coventry and Birmingham, um, and he was looking at my dad to be a German spy. So this is the experience my dad has as a young man listening to this. But he, was, he had a lot of struggles, my dad did. He didn't have any education. Um, and he would have been a classic for the Open University, but of course it didn't exist in those days. But he was a very special person. So was my mum. Mm -hmm. yeah, I was very lucky to have them. Yeah. And the importance of parenting, it still filters through to, to now in terms of how we're guiding young people and guiding children and helping them to navigate a world that we all want to create. Yes, and, and we have to do it. We have to do, be positive about it, have an input. We don't just let it happen to chance. It doesn't happen mm -hmm. by chance. You have mm -hmm. to really live it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why, sorry, Jane. Go on, go on. I, w I was thinking one of the things that we are making sure that we're doing is not allowing things to happen 
by chance and actually preparing these kinds of conversations to turn into action now and to move away from just a staff meeting or a personal reflection, putting things into practice and making sure that conversations are had between parents, between early years workforces, early years managers, local authorities, people who are responsible for, you know, checking in, you know, so I would say like the regulatory body, Ofsted, on all levels and in all departments, we have to get this action, you know, embedded so that we can challenge everything effectively. And I think I'm really interested in your journey to becoming the Jane Lane, (laughs) because it's often about these personal narratives that we share. That is what becomes the most empowering, I think, when we're talking about... Absolutely, because one of the things we're, we're suggesting in our letter, this article we're writing, is that people in the early years talk, have honest and open conversations with one another, not just with people who they work with, but with other people, and people from different early years bits. So they talk and try to develop a race equality strategy. And doing that, they will find out so much that they need to know. One of the, when I worked at the Commission for Racial Equality, which is when we, this was in the eighties. So we were beginning to think what early years and race meant to one another right at the very beginning of thinking. So we were thinking about language and then we thought about institutions and then resources. And we went through all this. And a group of us, about 20 of us, black and white, male and female, we met for two years every month for a whole day. We were very lucky to be able to do that. And that was the most seminal experience of all our lives. Mm-hmm. Have an opportunity to sit down with one another, listen to one another, hear one another's ideas and thoughts that he'd never thought about before and talking about them mm-hmm. it was, mm-hmm. that's what i that's what i think we all want to do with one another if we can and i did it yeah. I, we, we did it in oxfordshire too we had a group of people in the early years and we met for about 10 years for for a, just for a little bit of an afternoon for about 10 years we met and that was very good too we just came no agenda we just arrived at the meeting and you just talk about what had happened mm-hmm. and 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 it then it all, all came out and all sort of we learned from one another we learned so much black people from white people white people from black people it was just mm-hmm. incredible i think those sort of experiences are so important oh. and it's it's really interesting that you kind of look at the time scale of this because this isn't short quick work this kind of transformative work has to happen over long periods of time. And I'm glad that you mentioned that. It was that timescale 10 years. You know, this is a large part of people's experience and life and it can't be, you know, shortcuts. And I love that you spoke about that because having that ready conversation and having that honest conversation and knowing that people are willing to commit that time over a period of time it allows for change to actually take place and it's it can be very transformative well one of the things we looked at fairly soon was resources i mean we Mm -hmm. were looking at black dolls Mm -hmm. and we found out that john lewis only sold black dolls at christmas Mm -hmm. that was helpful wasn't it and uh and 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 the uh, lego toy not lego um 
what were the little, what are the figures that were sold in, in sets of black and white people, but they're only sold in sets, you couldn't buy them separately. Yes, I know what we, we set up a group called the Working Group Against Racism in Children's Resources. It lasted for about eight years, I suppose. And we went through, we had meetings with the toy manufacturers. We had all sorts of meetings to raise these issues. And they said they couldn't make black dolls because they were more expensive to, to make. Mm. And we talked about that. And, 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 and we talked the whole thing. Then we wrote about that. And that, those books still exist, <coughs> still yeah. around. But they're, of course, it's a long time ago now. But they're still worthwhile reading. And we talked about child development theories, mm. all that child development rubbish. That A lot of it, you know, of what black boys do. <laughs> and we looked at um, Brain and Martin. Do you know Brain and Martin? Yes, indeed. Indeed. Well, we took them on because they, they were really, really bad. Yeah. I hope, I hope nobody's listening to this. I hope that everybody's <laughs> listening to this, Jane. Everybody needs to listen to this, including John Lewis, and they've better have sorted themselves out, although I know that they haven't. Rain and Martin, and, and the fact that black boys can't sit still, can't, these sort of things. Hmm. And it, they just had to be challenged, and people did listen, and the, there was a great change, and the thing that was effective because we brought in the Race Relations Act. And yes. we said this sort of thing was unlawful. Mm. I believe unlawful. This was a different ball game. And mm -hmm. that gave us a hook to hang things on. Of course. Of we course. want to use the law as much as we can. And one of the things I've been trying to do is persuade the, the DFE and the Equality and Human Rights Commission, who, who can change things, to do something about that bit of the Equality Act, which says, fostering good relations between people because that's a little bit of the law you can say that's what everyone needs to do fostering good relations means valuing respecting equally everyone mm -hmm. and it totally. means working with young children to do the same totally. so that's what i was hoping that the the equality human rights commission might do and take on but they didn't and so mm -hmm. that's another disappointment we're having to end us disappointments you know they don't because so lots of men deal with these white men and they say no you can't say that yeah yeah you can't say unlearn mm -hmm. and you have to say yes you can yeah and uh, so it's it's really important but but most most people who are in power don't understand what young children's they don't understand about young children they don't know about young children mm -hmm. in the sense that how they learn and um and you don't have to know a lot to know how they learn <laughs> it, isn't, it isn't sort of psychology you just need to know something that they learn and they pick it up you know if if a child is is sitting there and you speak french mm -hmm. that child will learn french mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. won't learn english mm -hmm. even though they're in england and <laughs> they will learn french <laughs> So you have to realise that, that that's the children reflect their environment, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think these are really key things that you've talked about. And what I think is quite bittersweet is that there are some changes that are happening, but there are some things that are remaining the same and are refusing to change. So we're still up against lots of white men from particular class who are at the top making the decisions. Yes. And we look at the intersection of you know when we're talking about feminism we're thinking about intersections of race and class within that as well really who has, 
you know, who has the final say, who can make the decisions and who is upholding the patriarchy, Jane, because we still see that people in these positions are unwilling to relinquish their power. And that's one of the big things that we're fighting all the time, in early years in particular, who is sitting at the top, who is making these decisions, who is going to listen to little old Liz Pemberton, you know, who's going to listen to Jane Lane? Oh, she wrote books ages ago. And these are the challenges that we're constantly pushing back and again. another challenge which is important is, is, is people with power are not always men. Mm. Not women with power. Yeah. And they don't necessarily stand up and say these things. They may agree. They may say after something, Jane, that was really important what you said. And I say, why didn't you support me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what we need to do. We need to stand up and support one another. In the Thanks. same way, for example, it's not the same, but you know, if I saw someone on a bus being racially abused, I would mm. say, Who's going to come with me and deal with this? I wouldn't do it myself. And I, yeah. someone, I would do it with someone else because that gives you power and the strength of numbers. And mm -hmm. other people will see two of you and they'll come too. Totally. So you seek allies all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and seeking allies, um, as I said earlier on, it's so important and it's the key to making sure that there is momentum in this movement. But I think when you talked about women being in positions of power as well and not being able or not wanting to or being scared of challenging, which I still believe the patriarchy, that really is something that I see in early years. Because when I look at early years management, when I look at, you know, the earliest sector, there are a lot of white women who are holding on to control. And there is a deafening out of, you know, voices, black voices like myself and other black practitioners and, and early years educators who desperately want the change and are desperately rallying other allies to kind of join forces because it, it, it becomes a thing where it's like, oh, it's, it's in trend, it's in trend. So because it's in trend now, we're going to start doing something about it to shut people up. And we're hoping that this time, because of what's happening again, it's almost like a civil rights resurgence, uh, resurgence of things, that we won't lose momentum, that more allies now will be empowered to come on board and take this thing on because children are soaking up so much about how they're constructing the world from under three years old. And oh. it's not something you're not familiar with, Jane. You know, this is something you've been doing a long, long time. Yeah, uh, yes, I mean, it, it is. <laughs> yes, it's a very long time. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes I sort of almost give up because it seems, I mean, I, I have seen progress. I have mm -hmm. seen progress. There has been progress. The toys, resources are definitely better. Books, jigsaws, yeah. um, dressing up clothes, although I don't know the dressing up clothes are used appropriately. I mean, mm -hmm. it's them in the dressing up box and nobody playing with them and yeah. all of that. It's about modeling things and making sure that the, you, you, you show that this is a positive resource. Of course. Um, but you get attacked. Now, when I wrote that book, you know, Young Children, Racial Justice, I got a lot of flack mm. from all over the world. It came from blogs in America, a lot of really racist stuff. Yeah. And, and the National Children's Bureau, who, were, um, who published the book, mm -hmm. they had to get the police in to help their staff because mm -hmm. the abuse coming from was so great. People get really angry about this. A group of people, I don't think they're so much in this country. I really mm. don't think they're in this country, mm. but they are in America. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're seeing, I mean, I should just say, although this is kind of being recorded and you can hear our voices, I'm going to show you, Jane, this is on my lap. 
<laughs> this comes to bed with me. We have this. Well, here. Yes, I've got one here. But Lovely. Another. We're all showing to the camera, all of the listeners, our Young Children and Racial Justice book, because it is our best friend and everybody in the early year sector needs to read this. Um, if they haven't got it, shame on you. Um, <laughs> no, we're not using shame. Brene Brown said we shouldn't use shame. I, I lent a copy. I had two copies. I lent one to someone and I haven't got it back. Jane, I need to get you to sign my copy somehow. Somehow, I need your signature in this book here. Um, don't cry. Me and Jane have already cried before this, this conversation, listeners. But I think you say the resources have improved, which they have. However, I think a lot of us are still wanting more and wanting to access those very white spaces within early years. A lot of those nurseries that exist in suburban areas are not used to having a diversity, a real rich diversity of resources and also getting staff, getting people to not be afraid to take out the black doll and to use the black poster and to inform their practice by all of the enriching things that they can gain from resources. So that's still a challenge, Jane. It's, it's still a challenge. But the most important thing that white people can do, in my opinion, is to, is to talk with black people become friends with them, work together, campaign together. Because yes. walking in black people's shoes, and they walk in white people's shoes, we see one another, that's really, I mean, I've got friends, we set up an Asian women's refuge in the 80s, where mm -hmm. I live. And those people who we set up, we still meet, we're still friends. Fantastic. Um, it, you know, that, that's how deep the friendship goes. That um, we can still talk about these things and, and we still meet, and that's what I mean by having friends, it, it's it's not just meeting by the photocopier. It's it's no. much more than that. It's actually mm -mm. walking in someone else's shoes. You don't understand what it's like, and I never will understand. I mean, mm -hmm. I will never understand. The speaker will never understand what it's like to be white. You mm -hmm. will never understand that properly. Mm -hmm. But you can't begin unless you walk in their shoes and understand what it's like yeah. and, and see what's going on. Yeah, and I think some of the reflections that I've recently had, Jane, have been really around kind of doing a lot of work with um, with David Kahn, with Kate Moxley, with Kerry Payne, and really being given the space to be heard. Because in this, you know, when white people are, as you said, exchanging um, conversations around race for the black people in those conversations, and I've certainly found this, it can be very traumatic, it's upsetting, it unleashes a lot of emotions. But one thing which I think has been really be beautiful for me is just the lending of empathy and the lending of time and space to actually hear some of the things that have been happening. And I think me and you, Jane, we'd, you know, in our email exchange, because we'd had an email exchange, listeners, before obviously this podcast had taken place. And I shared with you, you know, I was born in 1982, and some of the things that <laughs> I had experienced being born in 1982, you know, I'm coming off the back of, you know, my mother's legacy and my mother was born, you know, in the fifties. Um, and you had said to me, and I hope you don't mind me sharing. Do you mind me sharing what you said in response? I don't know what I said. <laughs> that, you know, you've got, you've got 50 years on me. Yes. And yes, I was born at the very end of 1932. Yes. What a time that was, fascism, yeah. um, yeah. coming up to the war, living through the war. Yes, I'd seen black American soldiers. Yes. Where I lived, black American soldiers. That was the first time I'd seen a black person 
and they they all they they all go to dances. They would meet white working class girls and yep. then have relationships with them and go back to the states. That's yes. the origin of it. That's the origin. Yeah. And I think it's very significant to point out these things because they shape our perceptions. You know, whereas for me, you know, as soon as I was kind of put into nursery, as it were, as soon as I was born, I was interacting with white children, white people, mothers, fathers, you know, I was always around white people. So my socialization in terms of being born in the eighties, I was born in Selly Oak in Birmingham. Um, and you know, at the time there weren't a lot of black families in Selly Oak, you know, and our interactions were always, always happening with white families. And I think some of the early family holidays that we took, for example, were to Cornwall, you know, we were the only black family in Cornwall. I about that one, yes. <laughs> I worked with black people who went for holiday in Cornwall. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe the reaction they got. Yeah, absolutely. And those things are very poignant in my mind now about some of the experiences that I had in Cornwall. And albeit it was a very nice times that I had there. You know, I remember seeing gollywog dolls and people acting like that was very normal. And that being quite shocking for me because I was thinking, well, what's this doll? That doesn't look like me. Is that supposed to be me? You know, and that's just within this kind of near 40 years of life, going through a time where we now know that Gollywog doll was on the Robinson's fruit jam and the marmalade and seeing the transition of that not being there anymore and seeing the furore about people's response to that, white people's response to that, you know, it's not so bad. What's the big problem? What's the big deal? But how hurtful it was for me, you know, at primary school, talking about this colour of my skin, the colour of my skin, the colour of my skin. And why was that so important for me to have um, a reflection on that as somebody who now works within the sector? Well, it was important because it meant that I realised people needed to be educated, people need to talk, and people needed to have, as you rightly said, really lifelong, deeply important relationships with one another outside of our racial groups. And I that's always been the I foundation. I'll tell you, I won't tell you now, but I'll tell you something about a session we had with Robertson's Marmalade mm. and black, black people and, and the Gollywog. We had a mm. session about it, which is a revelation. It's a long Jane, time. you're an icon. Why wasn't I at that meeting? <laughs> well, I can tell you there's, there's some horror stories. We collected horror stories. We ought to collect these horror stories because they are, some of them are, Horrible. I mean, the worst one. Did I tell you, Kate? I don't remember that I told you this awful story. The worst story, and it is so shocking that I can hardly tell you, mm. of a, a white woman who was expecting a baby, and she had the baby when her partner was black. And mm. when she got into the labour ward and the baby came, was born, the midwife's first reaction was, oh, couldn't you get an abortion? Wow. That's pretty bad, isn't it? It's disgusting. But we look at the things and it, even the statistics now about, you know, what's happening with black women and birth rates and maternity yes. experiences in the NHS now. And, you know, our livelihoods, our lives are at risk still now in 2020. And it's saddening because we think what has changed? What has moved forward? You know, when my granddad came to the country in 1954, um, he, he came from Jamaica in 1954 and his brother was in the RAF. 
so he came on invitation but obviously at the time you know Jamaica was a British colony so my granddad came expecting for it to just be as welcoming as his home because this was the motherland and of course he was met with all of the racism under the sun but he taught me some very valuable lessons about the importance of not being afraid to speak up the importance of making sure that I stand up for what is right and the importance of making lots of different kinds of friends not just being stuck in one particular group no matter what somebody may have done from that particular racial group you're not to judge everybody by the actions of one and these are very valuable lessons that you know he not only taught me but his daughter my mother as well and how we've kind of moved forward to fighting for racial equality in the UK, it's really been driven by those values. And so when you spoke about your dad, Jane, I really, it, it, it resonated with me because I too share that these values from that time, you know, it's not to say all white people were racist, you know, all black people hated white people. That is not the narrative that we're pushing what we are pushing for, as you have, you know, so eloquently spoken about, is changes in legislation and the, not just the change, but the effective action in line with those legislative changes. People wanting the best for everybody, you know, we yes. want that. But one of the things that most people don't realise, except those in the early years, about how important the early years are. Because it seems to me we shall have racial racism going on forever in housing and education and employment until we stop people learning to be racist to begin with. And that's why the early years are so important. It seems so obvious. I can't understand why everybody can't see that. It's so <laughs> obvious. Um, but it, but it doesn't, seem to, doesn't seem to come on people's agenda. Mm. And it's so important. This mm. is the key lesson. This mm. is what I wanted the Equality and Human Rights Commission to make every early year setting in the country do. Absolutely. And we will be doing that. And when I say we, I talk about the collective of all of us who are listening, all of us who are doing some work, all of us who are starting conversations. Because we all know, as you said, the early years is the starting point and everybody is aware that you know this um is an important agenda but i do think there is still some reluctance to accept that children absorb the attitudes of their caregivers and they perpetuate these attitudes within the set you know within that that time of life naught to five and that goes on if it's never challenged or never molded and that's why i agree obviously our our roles are so important and they're so, so necessary. And we must continue, and we will continue, Jane, I promise, <laughs> for as long as I live. To what did you say? You will what? Continue to... Good. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so important. And when I... When I wrote the book, Children, Young Children, Racial Justice, I did lots of case studies. Mm -hmm. Now, the people, the publishers, the people who were behind it, didn't really see the point of those case studies. They wanted them to go on the internet as a separate thing. So, you know, you opened the book and then went to the internet. Mm -hmm. I thought the case studies were critical because they were real stories about real people and they explained exactly what children were doing and mm -hmm. what they were thinking about my friend Dorothy's little little grandson, 
Joshua, who who got a black daddy and a, a white mummy, mm -hmm. and then he referred to his his teddy bears as white like white mummy bear and mm -hmm. black daddy bear and me brown bear because he's in between. You know th those messages are so. That's what that child had learned from that and that when he was eighteen months. So mm -hmm. children learn their attitudes long before they go to school, and that's one of the big battles we have to fight. The media so thinks they learn probably well into primary school. So I think one of the key battles is that children learn their attitudes well before they're three. And it's obvious if you if you look at it, if you think about it. Yeah. That's what happens. It's obvious. That's what happens. It is. It but is. Most people don't see that because they don't talk to it. I mean, pe people really don't, because they don't hear it, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But it's in the child's. I remember my granddaughter, now she was four, she wasn't three, she was four. She's walking on the road with her mum and me, and she suddenly put her hands on her hips and said, I hate fat people. I said, Where's that come from? You know, what's, what's that? And you have to deal with it. But where she picked it up from? But she picked up from somewhere and she articulated it. Good job she did it just in front of us so we could deal with it. But you can you have to take these things on, don't you, and deal with them. But there and then you have to. And these are some of the conversations that I'd had about, you know, if a racist incident happens and a child says something, you know, that's it's happened to me. A child said, Oh, Liz, you know, how comes your hands are brown? But the inside of your hands is white. And that question was first asked when I was in primary school. But then a child had asked that when I worked in early years. And it's about being ready to have conversations about, well, my skin is this colour. Your skin is that colour. And our skins do this. And this is, and having that ready conversation, because we must be equipped to challenge and have conversations have with immediacy. We have to be prepared deal with something a child says so you don't just say that's not nice mm -hmm. you don't leave it like that you don't say mm -hmm. say sorry say sorry it's not good enough saying sorry mm -hmm. you've got to talk about and explain it say I'm sorry because you've been unpleasant to someone whatever they it's not good enough you have to deal with it properly unpack it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think people are scared to unpack even yeah. as adults adults don't want to unpack and we're really kind of wanting this unpacking to happen now as you said honestly sensitively but also immediately <laughs> we want an immediate start to this unpacking so we can start the life work because yeah. it isn't something that can just happen overnight and I just love that idea about meeting up every month for an afternoon over a long period of time it's definitely something that I want to do um because I have a lot of siloed conversations so lots of little different conversations with different groups of people all of the time um but there isn't any kind of tracing and reflecting because we often stay within our own friends groups um, and if our friends groups are not diverse well where does the conversation go it just goes round and round yes ab absolutely and we mustn't make assumptions about people I, there was one black woman initially came to one of the groups and um she didn't say anything and I thought she was just hostile. I thought she was, I assume she was hostile to me because I was white. Mm -hmm. I, don't have, I don't have a, well, I do have a problem with that, but I understand it. Mm -hmm. But at Christmas, she sent me this wonderful Christmas card saying how wonderful it was to know me. And yeah. completely misinterpreted her body yeah. language, completely. Yeah. And, yeah. and so we must learn to unpack that. 
And one of the most important lessons I learned, and I've described in the book, mm-hmm. where, I, where I, I park my car in a car park and go mm-hmm. to work. When I came back, um, I, could, I saw my affair had arrived at the bottom of the car park. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was, what's happened to my car? That was my mm-hmm. first thought. And I mm-hmm. said to myself, that's rubbish. Mm-hmm. What are you saying that for? This is so stupid. You've no evidence for that. You don't know. You don't know any fairground people. Where has it come from? So I walked towards my car, and when I got to my car, it had a puncture. So again, all this stuff came up. What yeah. have they done to my car? Mm-hmm. Actually, the fairground people came and helped me change the wheel. So that was lovely. But I learned a lesson that although we as white people may react like that, we don't have to act on it. So I get those things, I say to them, stop it, push it down, don't react on it. But the, but the reaction will come because that's our conditioning way, way back. We will have that reaction. Totally. But you just suppress it and say, that's rubbish. Yay. End of story. Absolutely. And that self-reflection is so critical. And that self-talk, that dialogue, and as you rightly acknowledge, we're all going to be full of these uh, preconceptions and you know stereotypes and it's about as you rightly said pulling it back and saying no this is not what I'm going to think this is not how I'm choosing to think we have to make sure that we take the time to get to know people to not assume as you rightly said and to move forward with the best intentions treat everybody how you would intend to be treated it's so simple when you think about it but it seems such a mammoth task to undo all of the sad work that has been embedded within our practices as a as a as a whole kind of global family we are filled with codes about people and we have to almost decode ourselves in order for this work to be done i don't know jane what the future looks like but if i could ask you you know (laughs) what do you think the future looks like for early years in regards to anti-racism what do you think it looks like well i think it's getting better okay i think it's getting better um Mm. i think that um we have hope there's people like you and me having this conversation the conversation i'm having with sharon Mm -hmm. um the fact that we can be honest with her she's i said i don't like what you've done and she and that's okay i can say that to her i don't have to think oh i mustn't say that i might offend her oh mustn't 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 be thinking about offending anyone you say what you think and people don't assume you're being offensive why would you want to be offensive to anyone you don't want to be it's something you say things which you which you think and that's what it that's that's the truth and, and we shouldn't be offended by any of these. They mustn't get upset. Um, but people do get upset. Do. But, I, I, but in basically, I, I have hopes because I think there are enough people coming on. Mm-hmm. People like you, people like Sharon, people <laughs> like a lot of people I know who are, who are keen, who contacted me, who want to do something, who I know will, will agree to do something together because they care. Absolutely. And there are people who don't care, but, but we, there are, we know who our targets are. Who, who, they don't, it, it's not because they don't, they don't really care. They've never thought about it. No, they've never, never thought, thought about it. They've never thought, they, they don't know much about young children and they mm-hmm. are in a powerful position in our society. Absolutely. Uh, 
And I think class is a really important integral part of race. They're mixed together. Yeah, totally. Hand in hand. The intersections of, you know, class and race, you know, these things are not things we can overlook. But Jane, I am so honoured to have had this time to speak (laughs) with you. (laughs) I am. I am. And I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to make any secret about it. You know, as Kerry and Kate are well aware And, you know, Laura Henry too. Laura is somebody who's very dear to me and has always spoken very highly of you. And of course, you giving us this time today just to have the conversation and also so graciously and so lovely to kind of have your reflections, Jane. I'm really appreciative. Um, But I think our time is is up. And so... We'll meet in the flesh one day. We absolutely will, Jane. I'm going to be camped outside of your house. Don't be scared. (laughs) But I'm going to find you and I'm going to start stalking you, basically, because I need the, I need the book signed, if, if anything. So thank you very much, Jane. I hope that you have a lovely day um, and I will look forward to seeing you in real life very soon. Me too. Okay. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>